Wow, what a delight uh, to be back at uh, First Pre- Well, I don't know, Grace Commons, I guess. I'll never probably call it Grace Commons, so sorry about that. I'll apologize in advance, right? Um, I remember, uh, I think the last time, gosh, the last time I spoke here, I was uh, part of the liturgist. Uh, this is back in the 90s, and I remember Sandy Lutz used to send out a little sheet to all the people that were going to participate in the service. And I think she underlined this for me. She said, it's an offertory sentence, not an offertory sermon. I remember that. Direct quote, right, from Sandy Lutz. Did you get that too, John? So anyway, I think she thought I went on a little too long. I don't know. Um, Anyway, it is really a joy to be uh, with you and to celebrate, gosh, 150 years of gospel centered ministry right here in Boulder. My name is Doug Ressler. And... um, (laughs) It is hard for me to describe the emotions my wife and I had driving back into Boulder uh, last evening, even though you couldn't see the flat irons um, with the rain. Um, it was in the fall of 1992 that I was a sophomore, just beginning my sophomore year on the campus at University of Colorado, coming off the worst year of my life. I was um, drinking heavily. I was skipping class. I was flunking out of CU, which is not easy to do. You have to be really intentional if you're going to do that. Um, and I... Uh, I was depressed, I was lonely, I was scared, I was lying to my parents, I was struggling in so many ways. And a high school friend of mine saw me on campus one day, and he, uh, he said, hey man, um, you need to come to this uh, thing called University Christian Fellowship, which is now known as the Annex. And I, I didn't know what else to do. I, you know, I was like, okay, sure. So I went that night, and a man named Mike Gaffney preached the gospel in a way that I had never heard before. Now, I'd grown up going to church my whole life, but no one had ever told me I needed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ until that evening. And so I joined a small group Bible study. That's what Mike told me to do, so I did it, right? Joined a small group Bible study. Um, We started in the book of Romans. That's not where I would recommend anyone begin their Christian journey, but that's where I began mine. And, um, and, I, and, and a few months later, it was uh, February of 1993, I can still remember the exact spot I was on the university campus. I was walking along, going to lunch the night before we had had our Bible study, and I remember thinking to myself, um, these guys keep talking about this Jesus guy like he is real and like alive, and not just some dead guy 2,000 years ago, and I think I believe that too. What does that mean? And, of course, it means everything had to change. And it literally was like the heavens opened for me in that moment. Again, I, was, I can remember the exact spot. It's a parking garage now. But, but it's, I remember the exact spot where Jesus met me and turned my life around. Um, and, I, and I knew that I just needed to be around this college group. So I started spending the summers up here, started you know, spending time around First Pres. needed to come to this church who had sponsored this college group, started worshiping here. I met a cute girl uh, through that ministry. Christy and I got engaged here over in the chapel. We got married right up here. Peter Barnes and my grandfather married us. We had a memorial service for our firstborn son in that chapel and spread his ashes, I think without Sessions approval, spread his ashes uh, on the far side of the chapel there, um, baptized our, our second child here, Chloe, and then this church supported us as we went off to seminary and, you know, into ministry. And so in a lot of ways, I represent and, and feel so indebted to this church because I am who I am today because of the people of this church. And Christy and I, who, are, are who we are today because of the people of this church, people that poured into us, people like Don and Dottie Bachman and Jerry Powell and, and uh, Jim and Kathy Ray. Ray. Raven, I mean, I could just go right down the list, just this litany of people that taught us what it meant to follow Christ, what it meant to, to be faithful to Jesus, what it meant to be married as Christians and to raise a family as Christians and all of those kinds of things. And so here we are now, 30, almost 30 years later, and it is just unbelievable to see the journey that God has taken us on. We went out to Princeton. Um, we're there for three years, did all kinds of ministry out there. Um, we worked in a, it was a kind of our first taste of what we call, what they say, and I guess in my line of work, um, church revitalization. That is working with churches that are on that decline and really struggling. We got kind of our first taste of that in seminary, working with a church outside of Trenton, New Jersey. I also did prison ministry while I was there. I did two years in New Jersey State Prison, which was unbelievable. Absolutely loved it. Um, it rocked my world in so many ways. Uh, left there, took a church down in Mobile, Alabama. First church out of seminary, a little small church, about uh, 80 people or so when we first showed 
showed up, everybody 65 and older. Christy and I had the only kids, and I walk in, you know, and I'm super excited. I'm 29, you know, I got all these ideas, right, about what we need to do and reach our community and all these other things. And I remember having our first elder meeting, and I'm like, where do you guys see yourselves in 10 years? And they're like, with a for sale sign out front. And I was like, how come you didn't tell me that at the interview? Like, what are we talking about here, right? And, uh, and I said, well, of course, I said, okay, well, if that's really what we believe, then what are we willing to do? And, uh, and for that church, what that meant, they had been planted in the 1950s in an all-white section of Western Mobile. Um, but uh, over those years, the, the, the people that could white-flighted out further west, um, and that left them in a, in a community now by the, you know, 2002, that was about half black, half white, lower class, uh, schools were shuttering, the tax, that tax base was shrinking. They had become completely disconnected from their community. And over six years, as, as we got connected back on mission with God, and that's really going to be the heart of what I talk about today, all right, because you want to overcome divisions in the church, you don't focus on the divisions. You focus on Jesus, the healer of the divisions. Amen. All right, amen. Now, at my church, they don't say amen back to me. I have to always tell them, right, say amen. So when I say amen, you guys say amen back. Okay, we got that. But um, it, that little church began to get engaged with God and on his mission. They began to do all kinds of things in the community, reaching the poor, reaching those who were of a different color, all kinds of different things. God broke the color barrier in that church. This is a, this is a southern white church and broke the color barrier in that church, broke down the economic barriers. That church got younger. We became intergenerational. It was just this amazing work of God over six years as we built relationships in our community. And we got a chance to be just kind of at the front row, kind of on the front row watching it all happen. It was a really, really amazing time. And so, you know, I'm thinking, like, this ministry thing is really, really awesome. I love ministry. Like, this is it. This is what I dreamed about. This is everything I touch turns to gold. Then God takes me to Wisconsin. And we go to Madison, Wisconsin to do church planting. And what I need to tell you is that I am the worst church planter on the planet. All right, two years of absolute, if I can say it, hell that almost cost us our marriage and our family. And I mean, it was just an absolute disaster as God absolutely took my life down to the studs and crucified my ego and reminded me that ministry is actually not about Doug Ressler and what I want, what I think I can do, but really about him and again, I, that, that project just imploded all over itself. It was with the PCUSA. I was still with the PCUSA at the time, which is the mainline Presbyterian church. And, um, you know, we, were, we had conflicts about everything, including even like whether or not Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, which I just couldn't get my head around. You know, how can we be in ministry together if we don't have that at the center, right? And so that was a part of the conflict that we had. Anyway, there's many, many other things. I didn't handle it well. They didn't handle it well. The whole thing imploded in um, really the summer of 2009, and I was going to be done with ministry. That was it. I was out because, you know, I, I worked at Boulder Community Hospital prior to going to seminary. I had a good thing going there. I was, you know, rising through the ranks of management there on some level. I mean, I, I was doing pretty well. I was like, I can go back and do that. You know, I don't need this ministry thing. It's just too hard. Um, and then a friend of mine out here in Colorado, Christy and I grew up in Colorado, uh, said, no, I, I don't think you're done yet. Why don't you come on out here? There's a church in Parker, Colorado. Y'all know, everybody know where Parker is on the southeast side of Denver? Yeah. So Parker, Colorado. Um, and they're coming off just a season where they have just been taken through the ringer themselves. And I think you'd be a good fit for them. And I was like, well, I don't know, man. Parker, Parker, I, what I remember from high school in Parker is like it's like a one stoplight town, dirt roads, more horses than people. You know, and, and my friend was like, ah, it's kind of changed. <laughs> you might want to give it a second look. So anyway, I came out, met with them. And what were they coming off of? They had just let go of their senior pastor of 20 years who had really helped grow that church from this small group of people meeting to a school to about 1,000 on a weekend. They were doing all kinds of wonderful things. But the last five years, he was pretty embattled, struggling, having all kinds of conflict with the leaders there. And so they finally made the decision to part ways. And that church went from 1,000 on a weekend down to under 300. And they had to cut their budget 50%. And they had to, like, let all the people go on staff. I mean, it was a bloodletting. All right? And his last sermon was uh, Christmas Eve 2008. My first sermon was Christmas Eve 2009. And so I walked in and was like, all right. And, of course, you know, the temptation is, is, well, Doug, you've got all the answers, right? I don't have any answers. But I know the one who does. And if we're willing to sit at his feet and let him guide us and direct us, yeah, I trust that he will show us the way. And you know what? That's exactly what's happened. I've been there 13 years now. 
God has really restored the years, the locusts have eaten, as he says in the prophet Joel, and, and it's wonderful to watch this church become. In a, in a community much like Boulder, I mean 90% white, you know, when you talk about ethnicity and some of those things, but we have become more diverse, we're intergenerational, we have some ethnic diversity, we have some economic diversity, um, it's just been amazing to watch God bring. We have certainly sexual diversity, the LGBTQ community is very present in our midst, which we love. We, where else are they going to hear the gospel? We love that, right? We embrace that. We have, we have transgender kids in our midst that we are working with and walking alongside and all of these kinds of things. And I want to paint like a pretty picture. It's not pretty. It's kind of a Jackson Pollock, right? It's kind of scattershot. It's kind of a mess. But we love the mess, and that's how God shows up. And so that's uh, all of that, I think, I just want to say to you is... Um, all of that has come into being because, again, of what God did in us through this church. We are a part of your legacy and a part of what God is doing in the world because of what you guys, how you guys poured into us. And so I just give you thanks for that. In fact, I was talking with Russ and Janice Teets, you know, before this thing, thinking like, gosh, I was a senior in college and I stayed in their house. And, uh, and they hosted me for the year. And you can talk to them about whether that was a good experience or not. But um, anyway, uh, it was so amazing. And so... Um, Anyway, I just want to say a special thank you to you because everything we've been able to do in our lives and in our ministry, we really do believe is a direct result of this church. And so we could never repay our debt. Um, back, to, back to Grace Commons, back to First Pres. Um, and so grateful for that. Another part of the work I've done, mainly because of, again, the experiences I've had in some of these churches where I've been able to help lead some revitalization, is I do a lot of work nationally with our denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, which is sort of a cousin to ECO, um, helping churches revitalize. Uh, you may or may not know it, 80 to 85 percent of churches in the evangelical space are plateaued or declining. All right? So that, that's, just a, that's just a reality now. And we're starting to really begin to grapple with that reality. What does that mean? All right, for, um, for the church. Because guess what? God's, God doesn't care about that. God, God's not concerned about that. It's not like the gates of hell all of a sudden have gotten stronger and now we're going to overcome God's church. No, that's, that we know that's not going to happen. The question is, is whether God's church is going to finally get serious about getting back on God's mission which is what the church was created to do and to be, all right? And so I do a lot of work helping churches around the country get back on mission with God and, and put aside what they think you know, their life should look like or be about or whatever it might be that's got them all tangled up and kind of in the mess that they're in, get back focused on, on Christ and what he wants to do in and through them. Um, and so, so when, when I was talking to Ash McDonald, she, you know, called me up a few weeks ago, said, hey, is there any way you'd be willing to come and, and talk? And I was like, wow, yeah, absolutely. What an honor. I love First Pres. I mean, again, I'll do anything. And she goes, well, we'd love for you to talk about divisions. And I was like, really? And she goes, yeah, none of the other speakers want to talk about that. And I was like, really? Imagine that, right? And then I come today and I hear Meeks was supposed to talk about it, but he punted on it. And so it's come to me to talk about divisions in the church. And so um, anyway, I'm happy to do that. Um, it is kind of my thing a little bit. I like doing this. I like having these conversations. We'll also have an opportunity for some questions at the end as well. But here's what I want to do. I want to kind of set this whole conversation up with this title, all right? Sometimes when you come to a symposium talking about divisions in the church and how you overcome divisions in the church, they'll talk, the, the, the title is, how do you combat divisions in the church? And I've got to tell you, that's the worst possible thing you could try and do to overcome division is to start combating divisions in the church. If you want to overcome the divisions in your midst, and Harlan referred to this passage, we're going to look back at it a little bit, you go to Christ. He is the one who has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between us. So if there are dividing walls of hostility in our midst, we've got to go back to Jesus and let him do that work inside our own hearts and inside our own church to tear those walls back down. All right, And so what I have discovered over the course of now almost 30 years of ministry and doing this work intentionally with churches, again, across the country in all sorts of different cultural and community contexts, all right, it doesn't matter whether you're a city church, a suburban church, a rural church, it doesn't matter, right? A lot of churches are struggling, all right? What you've got to do is you've got to focus in on your union with Christ. And if you will focus your mind and your heart there on your union with Christ, then guess what? The divisions that, that seem to get you all tangled up, they'll start to fade to black a little bit. All right? And you'll start to find yourself picking up momentum and moving out on God's mission. As you move out on God's mission, you'll find you don't really have time for all the little silly arguments that you get in along the way. All right? 
And, and, and again, I don't want to minimize some of those arguments. Some of those arguments may be important, all right? But a lot of stuff we talk about is really not all that important. I really fundamentally believe that when God says, or when God describes the church in Revelation 7, 9, as, as this body of people that come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, this multitude before the throne of God, that, that is not de- that's not just descriptive, but that is prescriptive. It's actually what we're supposed to reflect here on earth. My job as a pastor is to help my people practice for heaven. And I have to remind them frequently that there's not going to be like a little Presbyterian tent over here and a Baptist tent over here and a Methodist tent over here. There's not going to be traditional worshipers over here and contemporary worshipers over here. There's not going to be black Christians here and brown Christians here and white Christians. No, that's all nonsense. We're all going to be together gathered around before the throne of God, and we're going to be one with Christ, and we're going to be focused on Him. All those distinctions, while they will not disappear, because it is who we are, they will become secondary, right? To the primary focus, the primary object of our attention, the primary object of our worship, which is Christ. Amen? All right, good. The first group up here is getting it, all right? What about the back group? Can I hear it in the back? Amen? Okay, awesome. Right on. Okay, so union with Christ in an age of division. How many of you know that great hymn, The Church is One Foundation? What's the answer to that question? What is the church's one foundation? Jesus Christ, her Lord. That's right. Well, that that hymn was written, by the way, um, in South Africa. I don't know if you know that. It was written in South Africa. It was written to combat, of course, the divisions that were occurring around apartheid. And some of the issues that they were dealing with. It was actually written way before apartheid. It was written back in the 19th century. But already the racial divisions were present in that country. This hymn was written for that. And in verse 3, right, it talks about how the church, right, is by schisms rent asunder, right? We have these challenges that we face. They are real. It's no sense in pretending that they're not there. They are there. We have all kinds of divisions that we deal with on a daily basis. And and I don't know if you've seen some of the latest statistics, especially as we come out of this past couple of years with with the pandemic and the lockdowns and the responses and all all of the stuff that sort of exacerbated and raised the level of tension in our society, raised the level of tension in our churches, right? All right, what's what's beginning to happen now is you're starting to see the fallout from that. And so according to to the latest poll numbers from Barna, 38% of pastors, almost 40% of pastors, have thought about quitting. It's just too much. The stress and the, the political divisions, mainly the disrespect they feel, the church conflict they struggle to manage through, it has absolutely devastated the pastoral sort of vocation. And I know pastors aren't alone, by the way. Talk to a healthcare worker. Talk to a teacher these days, right? There's plenty of other, talk to a first responder. There's plenty of other vocations where this has happened, but pastors have also felt that same stress. 65%, this is a different number from, this is from uh, Rainier. Barna says 80 to 85%. Rainier's kind of done a deeper dive. He says it's really more, probably around 65% of churches are plateaued or declining. He said, uh, Gallup said, just this, I think it's just this last year, that for the first time ever in the United States, 47% of Americans belong to a faith community. It's dropped below 50% for the first time ever. Ever. All right? One-third dropped out of church entirely due to COVID. Or at least, I mean, I think that's yet to be seen on some level. There's still a TBD on that a little bit. But the numbers at least that we're seeing right now are not pretty. They're not good, okay? And why, do, why are these things happening, right? Well, in, in, by and large, it's because of these, uh, these schisms, these, these, these divisions that we have. And some of them are external. Some of them are internal. Some of them are interpersonal. Some of them are spiritual. We can't ignore these realities, right? So you think about the external divisions that have sort of pulled the church apart. What are some of them? What are some of them? Just shout them out. What, what are some of the divisions that have pulled the church apart? What's that? Masks. Oh, I thought you said math. I was like, oh, not math. Okay, masks. Yeah, right. What to do about masks. Absolutely. What else? Politics. Yeah, what else? Music. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, sexuality, right? Absolutely. 
I mean, these things are realities in our world, right? And if your church is like mine, and I'm sure that it is, right, you've had arguments between Republicans and Democrats in your midst. You've had arguments between progressives and conservatives in your midst. and, and, And unfortunately, because of what's happened in our society, that discourse is toxic. It's not healthy, right? It's not healthy, and so people end up pulling apart. Again, the COVID response, that was, I tell you what, being a pastor trying to lead a faith community through the pandemic, uh, there is absolutely nothing that can prepare you for that. Right, John? Right, Harlan? Yeah, you give me an amen on that, right? I mean, it, 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 there's no win. There's no way to do it, whatever, right? You got maskers versus anti-maskers. You got pro-vaccine, anti-vaccine. You got people that, you know, want to resist the public health department and consider them the enemy, other folks who want to fall. I mean, it is super challenging to navigate those waters. And then, of course, you have the social unrest, right? Following the murder of George Floyd, following the different things that are going on. You have these riots that are breaking out in cities all across. I have a friend who lives in Portland, Oregon, and for like 90-some days, what was that, last summer, they had riots in their city for 90 days straight. And I mean, he's a pastor there, and he's like, man, we are like on the front lines here, it feels like. You know, this is so challenging, right? Um, you have the targeting of first responders, all right? And I mean, that happened in Dallas. I don't know if you remember that incident, right? It was after George Floyd, but there were, there was, I think, four or five police officers intentionally targeted and killed in Dallas as people began to target first responders, right, um, in the wake of some of these things. You have this growing cultural apathy as well, right, or hostility even to the gospel. You've got the rise of the nuns, which is now about 30%. Of the American population. And by the way, nuns, we're not talking like Catholics, right? Right? We're talking about people who don't identify with a religious faith. That doesn't mean they're not spiritual. That doesn't mean they're atheist. It just simply means that they don't identify with a particular religious faith, okay? And they see the church as irrelevant. Those are all examples of external forces that are pulling the church apart. Then you got internal forces that are pulling the church apart, right? And that's um, things like, you know, lack of, lack of adaptable leadership. Like, how do you actually manage change in a complex system like a local church congregation? Because you got to change. You can't not change. Like, that, that, that's not an option. That's not an option God gives you, all right? You got to change, but how do you manage that change? And how you do that well? And how do you manage the conflict that comes around that change? What happens if your organization is inflexible and is unwilling to change or unable to change? Or, you know, again, what do you do when all of a sudden they lock down um, society and you can no longer meet face to face? If you don't have organizational flexibility, you're in real trouble. I remember in my church, right? I mean, I remember they locked down the Friday. We got the, the news from Polis, that, Governor Polis, that we were locking down. We got it Friday. And I called up my worship pastor and my creative arts guy and um, two young guys on my staff who I love dearly. And uh, it was their Sabbath, their day off. And I said, hate to bother you guys, but um, guess what? Uh, we can't meet Sunday, so uh, the three of us are going to get together and pull off a worship service virtually. Now, we've never done that before. We don't, we're not set up for, vir- I don't know if you guys were doing live, I wasn't doing live streaming before any of this. Like, that was like a whole new world for us. And I said, we've got, we've got like 36 hours. And, and, <laughs> and thankfully, they pulled it off. And we've been able to do some stuff since. But again, if you don't have that kind of organizational flexibility, if you don't have the ability to adjust and to roll with the bunches, boy, you're in real trouble. And, and, and this last, again, couple of years has really brought that out. If there's lack of role clarity or healthy conflict management skills or decision-making processes, if you don't have all of those in place, you know, then you're going to struggle to meet the moment. And, of course, most of all, if you are not seeking Christ together and you don't have that pattern, I can't tell you the number of elder boards that I meet with across the country and churches across the country where, I mean, it's just a business meeting that's bookended by prayer. They're not really seeking the Lord together. They don't know how to seek the Lord together. They tell me that. They're like, Doug, we've never done it that way before, right? What we do here is we make decisions for the church. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you know what decisions to make if you're not seeking the wisdom of Christ together and seeking the mind of Christ together? And that's, again, a brand new thought typically for them. So if you don't have those things, you're in real trouble, again, especially when you're in these seasons of such significant and such rapid change like we are in. I mean, we are navigating rapids like you would not believe in our culture. Amen? Yeah, I was in Uganda a couple years ago, and um, I was on the Nile River, 
And uh, one of these years, I want to take a, a whitewater rafting trip down the Nile. You can do that, actually. Um, I hear you have to sign a waiver that like, basically signs your life away um, because the rapids there are like out of control. And, and, and that, to me, is like the world we live in now. It's like the Nile, like it's out of control, all right? It's, it's more powerful than you can ever imagine. And so how is the church going to navigate, all right? How, that's, that's why I brought this picture along with me. I, I wanted to put it up on the screen, but I couldn't quite get the resolution right, whatever. So you can come up and look at this. So this is the famous Rembrandt painting, Christ on the Sea of Galilee. It is my favorite painting in the world. My wife got this for me. Not, it's not the original, so don't worry about that. <laughs> the original disappeared from the museum a few, few years ago. This is not it. All right, this is a reproduction. But the thing I love about this, right, is you've got, is you've got Christ in this boat, with his disciples. Now, we just got back from Israel. We've been on the Sea of Galilee. He's on this boat with his disciples, and, and Jesus is back here sitting in the, in the in back here, what is this, the stern, I think, and this is the bow, if I got that right. And you got his disciples spread out all over this boat, all right? And some of them, some of them are like grabbing onto the sails, and they're going to harness this storm, and they're going to get across Galilee. And that's kind of, sometimes I'm, I'm like that. Like, I, I can just, like, charge ahead, and that's my thing, and we're just going to get there, right? And then usually what ends up happening is after I realize that that's not going to work, I end up like this guy puking over the side, all right? And that's me, all right? Um, and there's disciples all over this boat, and they're all doing different things, all right? And the one guy who doesn't seem to be bothered by the storm is Jesus. It's Jesus, all right? And, and, and really what he wants, and if you know the story, you know what he wants is that you, he wants his disciples not to focus on the storm, not to focus on the wind and the waves and all that's going on in society, but, but just to focus on him. Focus on him. He's going to get that boat to the other side. All right? You think about where you guys are at as a church. I think about where my church was at when I walked in. Jesus is going to get us to the other side. Amen. Right? Amen. All right, that's Don. Don's, Don's been my mentor from the beginning, by the way. And I hear that that's like a common story. Everybody is talking about their relationship with Don. But I have the most special relationship <laughs> with Don. So I'll just put that out there. Uh, anyway. Um, but yeah, you can come up and take a look at this picture and think about where you land, maybe in the boat that is Grace Commons these days. Are you kind of up here on the bow? Are you trying to like harness it? Are you trying to like, you know, steer the ship out of whatever mess you think it's in? Are you back here like, you know, sometimes I am puking over the side wondering if it's going to go. Are you back here like, I don't know if this is Peter, but he's got like this. He's got like the thing that steers it right. Like he's going to get this thing going. I don't know where you find yourself, but sometimes I think that's where we can end up in the midst of all of these things, all right? So those are, you got external factors, you got internal factors, then you got interpersonal stuff, right? We're people, right? You've probably heard that old joke about, from preachers about, you know, church would be awesome except for the people, right? Because people are people, people are messy, and people hurt each other's feelings, and people fear conflict, and people won't be honest with each other, and people seem to exhibit this inability to forgive and to reconcile and extend grace, right? We assume the worst of others. We offer conditional love rather than the unconditional love that Jesus calls us to. We, we put our, our self and our preferences and our desires above those of the wider body, right? I mean, all of these kinds of things are in play simply because we are sinners, and I'm the chief of sinners, so I'm the worst at some of this stuff, all right? And so that, that's a reality, too, we have to deal with interpersonal conflict and interpersonal divisions, and that creates problems. And then finally, the one that's, I think, most often ignored, the one that is not talked about but is probably the most powerful force trying to tear us apart is the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, right, that are always coming against us. And we are only occasionally seemingly aware of all that Satan is doing to tear apart God's church. We are under constant satanic attack. Now again, I don't want to like overstate that or freak you out or make you think that there's like a demon under every rock. There kind of is, but, that, but that's beside the point. I, but I'm telling you that like all you got to do is go with Maria or go with myself or go, with, go overseas. Like they understand the, the, the spiritual forces that are in play that are constantly assailing the people of God. And we have to become well more aware of that. I've, been, I've learned so much from my African brothers and sisters about that. Um, John 10.10 says that the, you know, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 1 Peter 5.8 says that he prowls around like a, coming, like a roaring lion seeking to devour. John 8.44 says that he is the father of lies. I mean, are we not dealing with so much deceit in our culture these days, right? It all comes from the enemy. 
Of course, Ephesians 5.12, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So all of these things are tearing us apart. They create the perfect storm, all right? And one of the phrases that I've been using in my church over the last few years especially is that, and I didn't, I, this isn't, I didn't make this up. This was something I read in a blog somewhere. But um, we are all going through the same storm, but we are not all in the same boat. We're not. We're not. Some of our boats are leaking and struggling. It depends on whatever personal place you find yourself in. You know, some of our boats are like big yachts and we're just cruising ahead or we feel like we are, right? We're pretty insulated from all of these things fundamentally, right? It depends on the resources you have, not just financially or physically, but your mental health resources, your spiritual health resources. There's so many things that go into determining what kind of boat you find yourself in when a storm kicks up. All right, like the storm has kicked up over the last two years. And then there's, of course, this collective boat that we are all a part of as a church. And, and what is that? What, what's going on there? And, and your boat at Grace Commons is going to be different than my boat at Pepsi or whatever boats that we might find ourselves in as well, right? Um, the, there are just forces that shape these things. And again, we're all, we need to listen to each other and come alongside each other. And right, as, in, as I listen to you and what you're struggling with and you're listening to me as to what I'm struggling with, guess what? Maybe we can like lash our boats together which will actually make them stronger. And then we'll maybe get through this storm a little quicker or maybe in better shape right at the end of the day. All right? The, the best thing about that analogy is that while we all may be going through the same you know, storm and we may all may not be in the same boat, we're also not alone in our boat. Amen? Yeah, amen. Jesus is in the boat with us. And so that's why, again, I love this painting so very much and want to encourage you to to think about that. So Ephesians, 5, or Ephesians 2, 13 and 16. Let me grab my phone here so I can get the scripture up. Um, that's the one that Harlan just read for us, right? I'll, it's worth reading again. So let me pull it up for us. Um, Harlan read it to you in the uh, message version. I'll read it to you out of uh, the ESV. But listen to what, listen to what God promises you. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. How many of us were once far off from Jesus? That should be everybody, by the way. I don't care if you were infant baptized and never put a foot out of line. You were once far off from Jesus, all right? Those of you who were once far off have been brought near, not by your own strength, not because you, you know, agree with everybody in the church or anything like that, not because you have good friends or any. No, you were brought near by one thing and one thing alone, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. You want peace in your church? Jesus is the only one that can bring it. And he has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new person in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see, God has done something in Christ. It's a reality whether we believe it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we can see it or not. It doesn't matter, right? Whether we experience it or not, it is a fundamental reality. God has done something for us in Jesus Christ. He has made us one. He has killed the hostility that exists between us. Those of us who were far off from Jesus, all right? Whatever it was that separated us from him, whatever it was that separated us one from another, God has put that to death on the cross, the Bible says. All right? And that is what gives us union with Christ now. We have this union with Jesus through the Holy Spirit right? that we get access to all the time. It's always there. And he himself is our peace if we will lean into him and if we will acknowledge him and if we will submit and surrender our lives to him. Jesus not only accomplishes this act, but Jesus himself prays that we might understand this act and that we might experience this act ourselves. And so if you go to John chapter 17, right? In John chapter 17, you got the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And what is Jesus praying for in that prayer? Anybody know? Unity. That we would be one even as he and the Father are one. Can you imagine experiencing the kind of unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus experiences with his heavenly Father? I mean, that's unbelievable. And yet that's what Jesus is praying for. That's what Jesus wants to see happen in his church. That's what Jesus is praying for you. That's what Jesus is praying for me. All right? 
This is amazing, amazing stuff. Jesus says in this prayer, just to summarize it, it's a wonderful prayer. He says that he, he prays that the Father will keep them in his name. All right, Keep them in his name. Why is that important? Because, because Jesus is the name above every name, right? And so whatever your identity is, whatever, whatever you think your identity is, your fundamental identity is that of Christian. The name of God. You bear the name of God. And that, that, should, that, should, that should put aside, that should make secondary all other identifying markers, whether that's age, ethnicity, economics. I don't care whatever it might be. All right? It has a way of relativizing those things in order to lift up the primacy of the main thing. It doesn't get rid of them. Does not get rid of them. I don't cease being a bald white guy, right? Just because I come to know Jesus, all right? No, I'm still the bald white guy, but that's not my fundamental identity. My fundamental identity is that I am a child of God. I am beloved by Him. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, all right? And that gives me the opportunity now to have some common ground with some other bald white guys like Don Bachman and those guys, right? I mean, that, that's what that allows, right? He also prays that we would be kept from the evil one. We'd be protected, right? Because Jesus knows that the primary enemy is not the person sitting next to me. It's not the person sitting across from me. It's not the person who may believe differently or vote differently, right? Or think differently or whatever it might be, spend money differently. The primary enemy that I am facing is the evil one. And what he wants to do to divide and tear down and destroy. Jesus prays that we'd be sanctified in the truth. The truth of the gospel that makes us a new creation, friends. And why does he want all of this? Well, Jesus is very clear. It's because it's not for us. It's so that the whole world might believe. That's why we do that, right? So one of my favorite quotes, right, comes from Lesby Newbegin. I quote it all the time in my church. They get kind of sick of me saying it, I think. It's not God's church that has a mission. It is God's mission that has a church. That's the only reason a church exists. And as soon as a church gets off mission, guess what? God has no need for that church anymore. He has no need for that church anymore. Because the church exists to serve his mission, period, end of story. And that, by the way, that's not just overseas. That's right outside your front door. That's right here in Boulder, right? That's why you guys have this heart for Boulder, right? It's because you understand on some level that there's a mission here that God has called you to, and that's, what, that's why you exist. That's why First Pres exists, is to serve that mission, all right? And then finally, Jesus not only um, accomplishes through his death and resurrection, the unity of his people. He not only prays for the unity of his people, the Bible says that Jesus blesses the unity of his people. Psalm 133, one of my favorite psalms on the planet, right? It says how good and pleasant, I don't even need this, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. How good it is. And at the end, it's like a four-line psalm or like a five-line psalm. It's very short. The very, that's the first line, how good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. The very last line of that psalm says, there God commands his blessing. There God commands his blessing. Now, I don't, I don't know of any other verses that I can think of where God actually commands his blessing. All right? Doesn't just promise it. Doesn't just say, yep, you're going to experience. No, he actually commands his blessing to go and, and to be with the, the, the people that are unified, that dwell together in unity. There's just something about the unity of God's people across all the diversity, across all the divisions that we have and we will always have in the church, all right, that God absolutely blesses. And what is God's blessing? What, what, is, what is that blessing that God offers us? Well, it's abundant life. It's eternal life. All right, it's life in him. And so union with Christ is the key to walking through this age of diversity that we live in. It's not going to get any easier, amen? Yeah, it's only going to get more difficult, friends. I mean, I don't know if you're aware of that. The waters are only going to get more choppy, not less choppy, all right? It's going to get more difficult, Jesus promises that that will be true. As the end approaches, things are going to get harder, all right? And that's why our union with Christ must get stronger, Okay, And thanks be to God that he has accomplished that union. We don't have to try and work for it. It's already been done. It's been done in Jesus. Now, that is a true, I mean, that's a reality, right? That, that God has accomplished our union with him. But the way we experience that union is, on some level, our work to do. All right, and so the way I like to talk about this, it's the difference between union with Christ and communion with Christ. 
communion with Christ. Now, we're kind of in charge of that piece of it, all right? That is our work in response to what he has done, all right? And so if you think about um, our work, right, Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, right, uh, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, all right? And, and the, the reality is that is our fundamental identity. So whenever you're thinking about overcoming divisions in the church, whenever you're wrestling with difficult issues, it is so vital that you come back to this fundamental identity, this fundamental ground upon which we stand. We don't have any other ground to stand on, all right? Not before Christ and not before each other. We have to come back to the fact that it's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. We talk about this in my church all the time because we've got people that come from a diversity of faith backgrounds and a lot of folks who come from no faith background at all. I call us kind of the dumb friends league of the church. We're like a bunch of spiritual mutts, right? We don't, I, may, I might be the only Presbyterian, all right, even though we're a, quote, evangelical Presbyterian church. And we think that's actually beautiful because my primary identity can't be Presbyterian because who cares about that? We have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism, we have one God and Father of us all that unites us across all these denominational affiliations, across all these wide diversity of religious experiences. We have people from Catholic to Pentecostal, all right? We, we got people, I mean, all over the map. It is so amazing and so wonderful and so challenging because we get on each other's nerves, right? We got this gal that every Ash Wednesday gets slain in the Spirit. You, ever, you know what being slain in the spirit is, all right? I'm telling you, every Ash Wednesday, on cue, before you can put the ashes on her forehead, she's on the ground, all right? We actually have an elder assigned in our liturgical plan to catch her. Who will be the Margie catcher this year, all right? Because we want to honor the fact that if that's how Margie experiences Jesus, I think it's a little weird, i got to be honest, but if that's how she experiences Jesus, no problem. So she falls on the ground. Anybody that's new to this service goes, what just happened? Did someone just have a heart attack? Life safety comes running up. You know, we got people wanting to give her CPR and stuff, and she's just on the ground worshiping or whatever. And I'm like, don't worry about it. We're just going to step aside and just keep on going. All right? And people are like, you know. What's going on? I'm like, you know, ashing their ears, right, as they're like, I mean, so we, you have that kind of stuff in the church, and it's beautiful, it's wonderful, no problem, right? Right, that, that's who the church is on some level. And then you got, if you're, if you're doing church right, you've always got non-believers in your midst who are coming in going, why do you do this? Why do you sing? I remember a, a young lady asking me that one time. She was totally unchurched, and that was her big question. Why do you sing? I don't sing ever. In any other place in society, why do, you, why do you guys sing? Isn't that interesting, right? So you have people coming from all over the map, right? And, and again, we get to come together around Jesus. Again, our fundamental identity, which is transcendent and, again, doesn't erase these distinctions. It just sort of demotes them in the grand scheme of things, all right? And then we were given this name above every other name. Like I said, the name of Jesus, okay? And, and, and that, that name means all kinds of things. It means I'm saved by grace, not by works that I have done, but by grace alone. It means I live in humble submit, submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It means that I, I live to serve him and, and to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he is my first love. He is, my, he is, my, he is like everything to me. I mean, we tell our kids, Christy and I, all the time, we love you kids but you got to understand we don't we love Jesus more we love Jesus more now can I get really vulnerable with you let me tell you where that really hit us my oldest daughter who's 23 she and I have a great relationship she's given me permission to share this she is gay all right she lives with her partner we love Chloe and we love her partner and when we were wrestling through this with her she came to me and she said dad is there any way you will ever affirm all right, my, the, the, how I'm expressing my sexuality. And I remember I had to look her in the eye and say, you are asking me like the impossible question. You're asking me to choose between my love of Jesus and my love for you. And honey, you will lose that every time. And I love you, but I can never affirm that because that's not what my Lord teaches me about sexuality. And it was rough. But she respects it. And she actually has told me since then, Dad, I didn't, I didn't really expect anything else. And it actually was comforting to her. 
And when we had our graduation party uh, from, from her master's program this last uh, spring um, up at UNC Greeley, uh, we were up there hosting it, my wife and I and, um, and, and her partner's uh, mom, who's just a delightful woman. And we're having this wonderful party. And it's all, all these members of the LGBTQ community because that's all of her friends. And they're coming in. And it's like the Island of Misfit Toys on some level. And, and she is sending them out. You got to go talk to my dad. 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 And I'm hearing story after story after story of heartbreak and tears as these folks have talked about how their family has rejected them and kicked them out and all these things. And they're like, we don't understand. You're an evangelical pastor and yet you love your daughter. And I'm like, of course I do. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because I love Jesus. But you don't agree with her. No, I, I can never agree with that. No, that's right. But she doesn't agree with me. That's okay. Right? Life moves on. We still love each other. And it's this beautiful expression of how you can hold on to Jesus while holding on to those who might be far from him. But Jesus always takes the first place. And so that was really tough, but that's where it gets to worked out, right, in real life. It's easy to say and to sing, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's another thing to have to make that choice with someone that you love so very dearly and walk that journey, right? That's what we're talking about. All right, finally, we have one table. We are one family as a church, right? We are adopted as God's sons and daughters. We are gathered to worship around his table. I mean, who was around Jesus' table? Kind of a motley crew, right? I mean, it always strikes me like that Judas was at Jesus' table. And am I willing to let a betrayer sit at my table, you know, or sit at God's table when I'm presiding over that table as the pastor, you know? When, when some of the purists in my congregation are like, I can't believe you let so-and-so take communion. I, I always tell them, I can't believe I let you take communion. <laughs> I mean, honestly, right? Like, I can't believe I'm taking communion. Like, let's just be honest, right? And, and, and that kind of lightens the mood a little bit. We all kind of chuckle and laugh and, again, get reminded of the fact that this is Jesus' table. It's not mine. And he invites all who would believe in his name to come, right? So we have one table. And finally, we have one hope, right? One destiny, and that is we're all headed to heaven. All of us together are headed to heaven. That's the reality. Again, that Revelation 7, 9 vision, that's where God wants to take us. And so um, one final slide, and then I, I, think I'm, I think I'm supposed to be done like in 10 minutes. Is that right? Did I get that right? If you don't tell me, I'll just keep going. What do you say, John? Oh, okay, so we got some time. Yeah, oh, yeah, we'll do that. So, so let me just, as we kind of wrap up here, let me just get it real practical, all right? Because, again, we can, it's easy for me to preach about this stuff. The hard part is how do you actually get this, you know, get this thing down to earth, land this plane, and actually get into the nitty-gritty and, and the practicalities of what we're trying to do here. So, um, first of all, you've got to define what unity is. So let me just be very clear. Unity is not unanimity. Unity is not unanimity. Again, if your church is doing what God wants it to do, you will never be unanimous, ever, because you will always be bringing new people in who are coming to faith, and they need to be discipled and taught all the things that God has commanded, right? Like, that's reality. You will never have unanimity in your midst, so do not seek unanimity. That's not what we're talking about. Unity is not uniformity, it's not uniform. It doesn't mean that everybody looks the same, acts the same, spends money the same. You name it. That is not uniformity. No, absolutely not. We come from all kinds of different walks of life, okay? Unity really is spiritual. And the, way that, the best way that I've ever heard this described was from a mentor of mine who passed away a few years ago. His name was Steve Hayner. Some of you may know that name. He was the president of InterVarsity for about 15 years. When I did my doctoral work at Columbia Theological Seminary, he was my mentor he was my advisor, just an amazing man of God, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And his, the way he described it was he talked about heart alignment. That's really what we're talking about, heart alignment. You know, are we aligned in our hearts around Christ? That's what we should be seeking. That's the unity that we should be seeking with one another, right? And then that gives us all kinds of freedom to disagree, all kinds of freedom to be maybe in different places. All kinds of freedom to kind of, you know, map out our journey in whatever way that it needs to be mapped out. And as long as we've got that heart alignment, we're going to do that journey together. All right? A couple of weeks ago, I was climbing Mount Bearstat, which is one of our 14ers here. It was a couple of buddies of mine came out from Wisconsin. They're in their 70s. And I asked them, you know, as they came out, I said, 
are you really up for a 14er? I mean, like, you can't just walk out of Madison, Wisconsin and up a 14er. And they're like, no, 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 we're coming out a week beforehand. We're going to be at the YMCA, the Rockies, and we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to be hiking all week to kind of get acclimated. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to trust you on this. And we're like, well, Doug, we really need you to guide us up this mountain. And Bear Stat's not hard. Like, at the end of the day, it's one of the easier ones. And I'm thinking, okay, like, you know, probably three or four hours on the mountain because it's really kind of an easy walk up and back. Eight hours later, the skies have opened, it's thundering, it's lightning, and I'm like, guys, I don't care that you're 70-some years old. At this point in time, for you to survive this journey, we're going to need to run a little bit. Like, you got to hustle, right? And, and we're trying to get them off this mountain, right? And then afterwards, we're driving back, and we're just kind of debriefing a little bit. And again, talking about what we had just experienced and how difficult the hike was for them and how difficult the journey was for them at their age and how it was too much. They did get up at top, which was great, and they did get down, which was even greater, again, with the lightning and stuff. But, but I, I, you know, it was interesting to sort of, like, talk about that experience and understand that, you know, fundamentally, we were on the same hike, but we were having radically different experiences of this thing, right? And again, but, but, but at the same time, we were together. Like, I didn't leave them. I'm not going to leave them. I'm not going to abandon them, right? They didn't just sit down and say, okay, I give up. I mean, like, we're in this together on some level. And I think that's an analogy of maybe what this spiritual unity looks like. Again, different people, different places, different experiences, different ages, different parts of the country that we come from, all on this same journey of trying to find our way to Jesus. What's that? And uh, oh, okay, and the kingdom, and trying to find our way there. And if we can find our way there, if we can find our way to Him, if we do it together, right? Again, it's 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 going to be. We're going to have different experiences along the way, but that's not what keeps us together. So so I just want to make sure that heart alignment. That's the key. And I had heart alignment with those two guys. They had it with me, and that's what got us through. All right. So as we talk about recovering unity, and maybe that's where you're at as a church, right? I'm sure you are. On some level, that's where all churches are that are kind of in this season of like wrestling and struggling and maybe in decline. And, you know, what does that mean and those kinds of things? I, I just thought I'd share again a little bit of the story from um, what I've been dealing with down in Parker, right? And again, it, it begins just what I talked about. It begins with heart alignment, seeking heart alignment with Christ and with one another. And so again, I walked into this church that had just been absolutely crippled and, and, and train wrecked by what had just happened, this church split essentially, where hundreds of people walked out the door, took their dollars, took their, their, their talents, took their service, all of those kinds of things, and they walked out the door to the church down the street. That church tripled in size overnight, right? And that's really, that's really challenging, that's really difficult, right? All kinds of jealousy with that church now down the road and all kinds of that. And we, we just started talking as elders, just the nine elders and myself. All right, we're going we're gonna to preach the word and we're going to worship and we're going to do all the things, but we have got to start just the elders. And we're going to go to Jesus together and we're going to spend time with him and we're going to seek heart alignment with him. What is it that God wants us to do? This is a church that had lost sight of its vision, didn't really know who they were anymore, lost sight of their values, all of those kinds of things. We had to recover all of that. We had to do the work of recovering all that. But we couldn't recover any of that until we had first recovered our relationship with Jesus because that relationship had been wounded by this experience they had just gone through. They were not in a place where they were really in a, you know, happy with Christ at this point in time. They were pretty mad at him. And we needed to talk about that. So we mapped all of that out and talked about all that. And, and we got heart alignment among the elders. Then we moved out another circle. I, I tend to think of these things in concentric circles. Then we moved out to the staff. And does the staff have heart alignment around where the elders are now going to lead us and take us, right? Does the staff have heart alignment around that? And some of them did and some of them didn't. And those who didn't, that was okay. No problem, right? It's not, this is not a you're bad, we're good kind of thing. It's no judgment here. It's just we're now moving on different paths. We've got to acknowledge that. We're going to help you find the next place for you. But we're also not going to pretend that we're on the same journey because we're not. We don't have hard alignment, right? And so we had to have some staff turnover, talk through that, right? And then I began meeting one-on-one -on -one with different people in the congregation, key people who've been around a long time. Again, seeking that heart alignment. Where are you with Jesus? Let's talk about that, number one. And then let's talk about where, where we're at with the church and, and where, we, where do you sense it going and all of those kinds of things. And our elders did a lot of that same work. We, we sought God together through Bible study and prayer. When I say that like we sought God, so our elder meetings, just to kind of give you an example, they're four hours once a month. We meet together for four hours once a month. And we, we, we have a meal together, 
that is prepared by one of our elders. Right? They prepare it themselves. They bring it. We share that meal. We pray together. We spend about an hour and a half to two hours in Bible study. And then we spend about 45 minutes on business. And then a few of us go out and get a beer afterwards at the local bar. Right? And that's how we do life together. That's, that's once a month. And then outside of that meeting, I meet with those elders one-on-one, you know, at least once a quarter. Again, why? What are we looking for there? Heart alignment. Once you achieve it, you've got to maintain it. You've got to work for it. And as you find heart alignment and your elders are aligned and your staff is aligned and all of those and the leaders are aligned, then guess what? All kinds of wonderful ripples start to go out into the church all, and, 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 and beyond the church, into the community, right? Because now you're, you're focused, you're together, and you're learning to listen to the Holy Spirit in prayer and as you're making your decisions. And again, it, it's, it's acknowledging that yeah, we're all in this together. We're all in this, in this, you know, we all have our own boats and then we're kind of in this boat we call Pepsi. And where's that boat going to go? And what's it going to do? And how are we going to make sure that we don't, you know, get off track or, you know, you know, go to the bottom of the ocean, as it were, or whatever it might be, okay? And then you have to, after you recover a sense of unity, especially at the core of your church, then you got to work hard again, like I said, to maintain that unity. How do you do that? Well, it's just this, it's just this daily practice of extending grace to one another, Right? Of, of forgiving freely when we make mistakes. Our elder meetings are kind of, um, I, I love them because they're, 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 they can get a little tense at times because I really want to cultivate an atmosphere where everybody can share whatever they feel like they need to share. And so sometimes, like, we get into it a little bit. And it's not infrequent that an email goes out the next day and, you know, Bob might say to the whole team, hey, guys, I got a little tense last night. I really want to apologize and ask for your forgiveness, right? That happens not infrequently in our meetings. And I love it because I, I like... I guess I'm kind of a glutton for punishment. I kind of like tension. It tells me we're actually getting that, the honest stuff out onto the table, right? And I like that. And, and then again, managing through that, you can do it in a healthy way. So again, we want to forgive freely. We want to reconcile. If we're at odds with someone, we want to reconcile. That's the call of the gospel, right? We want to operate with transparency before the people of God. So after you start having this hard alignment with your leadership, what do you start doing? You just start sharing with the people what God is doing. And you're transparent about it, right? No secrets, nothing hidden here. Hey, if you want to know anything about what's going on, we're happy to share that. We're going to be honest with you. We're going to be transparent with you. Um, all of these things, what begins to happen over time, you do all of that over time, and what begins to happen is trust begins to build. And organizations move at the speed of trust. That's a Stephen Covey thing, right? But it's true. Organizations move at the speed of trust. And so trust is the most important currency that you have as a congregation, as a church family. Trust in God, trust in each other, all right? It's the only way you're actually going to be able to make an impact on the community around you, okay? And so building trust is critical. So we have two rules in my church. We can talk about anything, and every problem is solvable if we'll seek the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not hard, right? It's not rocket science. Every, we can talk about anything. So anything you want to bring up, we will talk about. It's not a problem. If you're angry with God, you just want to scream profanities at him, come on, let's talk about that. You can share that with me, right? It's not like I haven't heard it before. It's not like I haven't said those words before, okay? I'm, not, I'm a pastor, but I, I, I've been there. I know, right? All right, so if that's where you need to be, okay, then that's where you need to be. If you're like in the depths of grief and you just need to like, you know, absolutely just weep uncontrollably, like this is a safe place to do that. You can do that, all right? If you come in and you just think this whole thing is just totally bogus, awesome, Let's have a conversation about that, right? We can talk about anything. And then again, every problem is solvable. Nothing is not solvable as long as we're both willing to seek Jesus on it. And we've run into some really intractable problems over the years, as any church does, right? Some, some things where it's not always clear. Again, the COVID stuff is probably the, the biggest one, you know? But boy, we had unity through it. Even if everybody wasn't quite sure they agreed with how we were going to respond. Again, remember, it's not about unanimity. It's about unity. It's about unity, you see. Right? So that's what we did, and that's what I want to encourage you to guys to think about. And then when you find that unity or when, you, when pockets of it start to break out on you, you want to celebrate it. You want to celebrate it for all it's worth. And I've really learned about this through my work over in Africa because um, I'm, I'm involved, in, I sit on the board of this organization called the Petros Network, and it's sort of this uh, loose network of churches from across, again, the theological and denominational spectrum. Um, and we all come together to 
if, if the American churches do and the Canadian churches do, we come together to resource, train, and equip indigenous church planters over in the Horn of Africa primarily, although we're in some other places. So we're talking Djibouti, we're talking uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, and South Sudan. We're moving into Somalia probably in the next three to four years. We're already getting requests to go into Yemen. I can't wait. Now, my wife is not so sure about that, but I can't wait. I love that kind of stuff. I want to be right on the ragged edge. I'm going this fall. We're going to be up in northern Ethiopia where they've just had this civil war. We're going to be launching 75 new church plants up there. We work with now over 112 um, indigenous denominations. 112 indigenous denominations. They all have their denominational distinctives. They all have the stuff that kind of separates them one from another. But we work in unity with 112 different denominations. And over the last 20 years, I've been on the board for 10, over the last 20 years, this organization has planted over 6,300 churches. All right? In in that area, over 5.2 million people have heard the gospel for the first time because we only go to places where they don't have a church. So we get out into the, like, boonies, all right? It is awesome. I still remember the day. It was like my third trip out. We're like, you know, two hours outside of the city called Yabello in southern Ethiopia. We went like two hours out down this road, then like another 30 minutes down this like dirt road, then another like 30 minutes down this goat track, and then another like 45 minutes across this field. So we're like out in the middle of nowhere, And I remember like getting out of the thing and I was like, I am at the ends of the earth and there's a church. God is fulfilling the Great Commission. And I know Maria is going to talk about that, so I won't steal more of your thunder there, Maria. But it is the most exciting, amazing thing to be out in the boonies and you've never seen stars like you've seen stars in a nighttime African sky when you're like four hours from the middle of nowhere. Uh, It is just out of control, right? And so again, um, 5.2 million have heard the gospel, over 1.2 million converts now to the the Christian faith. Again, we only plant in in villages where there's no church. And and again, the focus, the the, the key verse that fundamentally drives us is Psalm 133. We work in unity together. This is not about growing a particular denomination. It's not about assemblies of God. It's not about Baptists. It's not about the Mennonites. It's not about the Presbyterian. This is about the kingdom of God. We're all committed to it. We're all going to be committed to one another and helping each other be successful. We're only going to go to churches or to villages where there is no church. We're not going to compete and plant churches in villages where there's already a church. We don't need to do that, right? We're going to trust that God has that village. Now we're going to move to the next one. And because we have focused there, because I believe we have put the unity of the body at the, at the center of this thing, around Jesus Christ, I believe God has absolutely blessed it. I think that's why we're seeing the fruit that we are seeing. It is unbelievable. It is out of control what God is doing. It is a revival like I have never been a part of. And I believe God gave me a word almost eight years ago now when I was over there. I was praying, and I believe God gave me a word. And that word is that before I die, we're going to be planting churches in and around Mecca. I fundamentally believe that because I'm telling you if we go to Yemen Mecca's just up the coast all right we're already planting churches around Harar which is the fourth holiest city in Islam in Ethiopia it's in, it's in eastern Ethiopia in the Somali region and we have that place surrounded I should say God has that place around it is awesome and people are coming to Christ like you would not believe so when you see the unity of God's people and the unity around the mission of God and the humanity around Jesus Christ. When you see that and you experience that, you want to celebrate that for what it's worth. And again, we're seeing it in my church down in, in, in Parker, what God has done after 13 years to bring us together. Even through COVID, we actually grew through COVID. And not because we gave the middle finger to the government. A lot of churches grew through COVID because that's what they did. They put their political affiliation at the forefront and churches grew like crazy i can point you to several down in the denver area that that's what they did that's where they planted their flag that's not going to get it done we plant our flag on jesus and we navigate the mess that that means and all of those things and i gotta tell you god has really blessed our church we're really thankful to be one of those churches that's really growing and god is doing some great things we just baptized about 20 people two weeks ago it was unbelievable all right what god is doing in our midst and so 
Again, it's not because of me. It's not because of our leadership. It's simply because we fundamentally have put Christ at the center of everything that we do, and we have unified around Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we've got uh, five minutes left, it looks like. If there are any questions, I'm happy to answer them. And my wife and I are going to stay through lunch, too, and maybe a little bit afterwards to hang out as well. So, Any questions? Thank you so much. Sure. I also have a queer child. Okay. And and this is new to us. Mm. Um, I, maybe some of you don't even know that. But um, I am so curious of what it looks like in your church to mm -hmm. include no. the queer community and mm -hmm. not be affirming, but they don't feel like mm -hmm. second-class citizens. No. Like, how does that work? <laughs> well, it's, it, it doesn't work very easily. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, at the same time Chloe was wrestling with coming out to us about her sexuality, I was asked to um, be one of the co-authors for our denomination's position paper, theological position paper on human sexuality. So it was an interesting, she actually worked on it with me. I mean, she and I did it kind of a little bit together, which was kind of fun. Um, it's not easy. It's messy. The biggest thing is they need to know that they're not going to be judged, all right, for being gay or lesbian or bi or whatever it might be. The, number sec the second thing they need to have confidence in is that you're going to be consistent in applying a biblical sexual ethic. So if your church turns a blind eye to people who live together who may be heterosexual, if your church, church turns a blind eye to sexual infidelity of any kind or immorality of any kind, porn, if you're not talking about those things, you're turning a blind eye to those things, then you better not be talking about homosexuality. That ain't fair. And it's just not faithful. So as long as I find that you're honest and upfront and transparent, this is the biblical sexual ethic that God has called us to. One man and one woman in a covenant of marriage for a lifetime. And anything outside of that is a, is a, is a deviation from his will, all right? And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna treat all of that the same in that sense. We're going to apply it across the board consistently. As long as you do that, what I find is that uh, they at least acknowledge that it's fair. That's fair. And they appreciate that, actually, because they, they know what the Bible says. I mean, my daughter, if she was up here, she would be like, look, I mean, I, I don't agree with it, but she's like, I know what the Bible says, you know? And so they know that. And so that's number one. And then number two, if you love them, because I, I, I love the, the couple in my congregation who's sleeping together outside of marriage, right? I, I love them. I love the, the, the gal that's divorced who's, you know, maybe going to the bars and picking up one-night stands. I'm not going to stop loving her or the guy what, that's looking at porn every night. I'm not going to stop loving them. So you love them, okay, while at the same time speaking that truth always consistently and applying it consistently. I find that if you do that and you do that well, there, there is, um, there's just something about it. Because the, the gay people in our community that I've talked to I'm like, why are you at Pepsi? There's plenty of churches you can go to that will affirm you. And they're like, yeah, but they don't preach the Word. So there's something about the Word that just draws them in. And they want to be there, but they also don't want to be singled out, nor should they be. So that's how we do it. And we're just open and honest about it. And again, I've, I've counseled um, folks struggling with the transgender question. I mean, all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of sexual brokenness now in our culture. It's always been there, but now it's out in the open. And... Um, you know, walking people through that, it takes a lot of compassion, a lot of time, a lot of faithfulness. It's not easy, though. There's no doubt about that. Um, because, again, the lie in, in our culture today is that unless you affirm, you can't be loving. Well, that's just not true. That's not true of anything. We all know that. There's plenty of things that my daughter doesn't affirm about me, but she loves me, right? So um, I think that's, that's really the key. You can hold on to Jesus, and you can hold on those who are not following Jesus. Like, that's, that's just the truth of the gospel. So that's how we handle I hope that answers your question a little bit. Um, yeah.